All right. So this week, John chapter 9. So get your Bibles open to John chapter 9. And we're going to see that this is a picture of what the Savior came to earth to do. To make blind men see, dead men alive, lost men found, and deaf men to heal. So in this case, it's the making blind men to see. So I'm just going to pray. Father, thank you for another opportunity to study your word. Lord, do what you say in uh, Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29, learn from me, for I am lonely and gentle or humble in heart. And I just pray that you'll help us to study your word. And as we look through this, not just to learn facts, but Lord, to look at who you are, to look at your attitude towards other people, your love towards other people, and so that we can learn to be more like you as we go through this Gospel of John. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to quickly go through what we did last week because this literally follows straight after the previous chapter, not just that it's chapter 9 after chapter 8, but Jesus is walking past the Pharisees and religious leaders who just wanted to stone him because he said that great I am statement before Abraham was I am. And there's a blind man. As he's passing by, there's a blind man there. And so uh, I just want to give you a bit of background as to what's going on in the hearts of the Pharisees and things like that and how this is a, how it all fits in. So humility. What is humility? If you remember from the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this, the difference between humility and pride. Humility is nothing more than an accurate or realistic view or understanding of ourselves. It's the degree to how much we see who we really are. The more we see who we really are, the more accurate our understanding of who we are is, the more humble we are. What is pride? Well, that's the opposite. Pride is the incorrect view or understanding of ourselves. And last week we saw the vast difference between who the Pharisees thought they were and Jesus' truthful and accurate assessment of who they really were. And the difference could not have been greater. These guys were completely self-deceived. And we learned that when a person is in darkness, it doesn't mean that the light doesn't exist, rather that they are completely blind to the light and therefore completely deceived. And this is what it means to be lost, to be dead in sin, separated from God. And Romans 3 gives a good description of this kind of person, of which we all were until God broke through by the power of his Spirit, giving us a glimpse of who we really are, which is depraved and deceived, because of the curse, sin. We're born in sin. And if we are willing to humble ourselves and repent in response to his grace, then we can be saved. And I've got a verse up here. That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. That's Romans ten, fifteen, and 16. Parts of those verses. Beautiful news. We can be saved. We can be free. But not everyone welcomes the good news. So as that verse says, some people, when they see a glimpse of themselves, either refuse to believe it or prefer to be like it, or a bit of both, despite the horrendous consequences of blaspheming the Holy Spirit by calling him a liar. And uh, 1 John one ten, there, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we make him out to be a liar. So what is repentance? Repentance is nothing more than humbly seeing our sin 
for what it is in God's eyes, accepting our responsibility for the choices we make and then choosing to change direction. So I see repentance as the process by which we become humble, whereas we allow God's light and truth to shine into our hearts and show us where we need to change. So humility and repentance are like the opposite sides of the same coin. They go hand in hand. So if a person has never repented, then they are not saved because they are still completely blind. Or like Jesus said to the Pharisees, they are still in their sins and will die in their sins. So spiritually speaking, they are completely prideful, completely blind, even though they might be a nice person outwardly. Now, I've seen a couple of um, advertisements for atheists that they've done you know, in response to Christians. And one of them is the, the nice atheist advert where you got the, the nice dad and he's, you know, a good family man. He loves his kids. He serves in the community. He, he works hard at work. And you think, wow, he must be a nice person. But what's he doing on the inside? He's shaking his fist at God. He's like this, you know, I'm in rebellion against you. I'm not going to submit to you. Beneath the nice exterior, he is a fist shaker. That's my word, a fist shaker. He's shaking his fist at God and refusing to accept the truth about his moral condition. He is blind, completely blind and dead in his sins, full of pride and completely deceived. So I use that as an example because it's not just religious leaders who are deceived. And the same is true for anyone who has not received the second birth, who has not been born of the Spirit. So once we have repented and ceased to see ourselves as good people, especially when compared to others, and we have trusted in the Saviour's payment or ransom for our souls, then we are saved. But the process of sanctification has only just begun. As Jesus said to his disciples in John sixteen twelve to 13, it says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Now, we're talking about going on a holiday soon to Israel, and we're talking about having a guide. Now, the guide just doesn't say, here's what you need to do, I'll see you later. No, the guide takes you step by step through the journey. The guide shows you where to go, shows you where to rest, shows you where to eat, shows you the history of the place, he shows you everything you need to know. And so that's what the Spirit does. He is our guide into truth. Think about going on a holiday or going on a hike. You need a guide to show you where to go. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our in our walk with God. So why is pride so dangerous? Well, it's because we don't realize that we have been deceived. That's why pride is dangerous. That's why this deception is so dangerous. We don't know we're deceived. And only a relationship with Jesus, abiding in the Word, and being His follower or disciple, as we've been through the last couple of weeks, will enable us to root out the pride or misconceptions that we have about ourselves and move toward a more accurate understanding of who we are. And that's the road from pride to humility. And for those who are wondering, well, I'm not proud. Well, check this verse out. It's Jeremiah 17, 9-10. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards 
according to what their actions deserve. So I know for myself that I'm still prideful and I know that God is still revealing things that I need to change in and that process is going to happen and can keep going until I go to be with him. And that's why one of my favorite verses now that I've recently come to understand more is um, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. We need to learn from Jesus, study his life, study who he is so we can become like him and become humble. So as we read chapter 9, I would like you to notice the blindness of the Pharisees and their deliberate refusal to accept the truth when it is literally right before their eyes. They've got these really good arguments that Jesus is the Messiah and they just they, they just refused to see it. They refused to accept it as being true. And compare that to the blind man who is willing to respond to the gradual revelation of who Jesus is. So let's read uh, John chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. The night is still coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that was last week too. I am the light of the world. Verse 6. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, sent. So he went and washed, and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and washed. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Then they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. Remember, Jews means Jewish leaders. That he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, 
We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, the Jewish leaders. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So they called again the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why? This is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us, and they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. So, let's go back to verse 1. It says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. So, we are all born blind. That's the, the picture here. But, Just remember that last week we finished with the Jews picking up stones to hurl at Jesus because he made this statement that before Abraham was, I am. That means he existed before Abraham. He is the eternal God. And he's just literally a stone's throw from them. And there's a blind man and he stops to talk to this blind man. And the disciples ask this question. Rabbi, who sinned? 
this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, this is a very interesting question. This is like the foundational question of all suffering. Why? Why is he suffering? And they proceed to give Jesus two possible answers. And they, in their mind, in the Jewish way of thinking, there's two possible answers. The blindness is either the result of the man's sin, or it's the result of his parents' sin. Now, if the blindness was a result of his own sin, then when did he sin? After all, he was born blind. And based on the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis 25, the rabbis taught that man could sin in the womb, and that's the way they explain birth defects. It's interesting. If his blindness was the result of his parents' sin, however, on the basis of Exodus 20 verse 5, the rabbis taught that his mother's, father's, grandparents' or great-parents' sin could have repercussions on him. So here is um, Exodus 20 verse 5. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So, what does it mean when it says God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation? Well, it doesn't mean that he's punishing the children for the sins of the father. That would be the Godfather, not the Father God. Exodus um, 20 verse 5 simply means that God doesn't change the rules. He will continue to judge those who hate him and to bless those who love him. It's that simple. If you read it carefully, it says, visiting the iniquity, like bringing the consequences, bringing judgment of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So if the children grow up hating God, they will receive the same consequences as the fathers. And verse 3, continuing this discussion of why do we suffer, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sin. Now, so Jesus says no and no. There's not a yes there. It's no and no. It's not the man's fault and it's not his parents' fault. So, what is the answer? Well, it's true that all sadness and sorrow are the indirect result of sin. But Jesus is saying here that no one can point a finger at one particular person as the culprit. Now many people, going back to Exodus 20 verse 5, many people say the reason they are vulnerable to the occult or pornography is because the vulnerability or weakness has been passed from generation to generation in their family. And, you know, child molesters often use that argument. You know, I was molested by my dad and so I couldn't help it. But you know what? Scripture does not teach this. In fact, it teaches the opposite. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, I'm just going to just refer to that. I'm not going to read it. But in the days of Ezekiel, people were justifying their own sin with a proverb that said, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And what they meant was, I can't help the way I am because of the bad choices my parents made. God, however, said, As I live, you shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. And that's Ezekiel 18, 2-4. In other words, every single soul is created by me, belongs to me, and is therefore individually responsible to me. And 
the rest of Ezekiel 18 goes on to describe, he gives four scenarios. A godly father can raise a son who can choose to be either godly or ungodly. That's the first two scenarios. And then you have an ungodly father who can raise a son who can either choose to be godly or ungodly. So there's four scenarios there. And parents, rest assured that your children's decisions are not in your hands. We can direct and encourage, but we cannot dictate what their choices will be. They have their own free will and are responsible to God for their own decisions. So all we are responsible for as parents is our own decisions. Did we love them unconditionally, parenting them as unto the Lord? Which means, did we or do we love them and treat them with respect no matter how they treat us? We are only responsible for what we can control, which is our own decisions, our own will, our own attitude. Okay, continuing in verse 3. But that the works of God should be revealed in him, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So, the answer to the question, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus is basically saying, I'm not here to answer your questions about this, but I'm doing the work of God in alleviating the suffering while I can. And Jesus doesn't give a reason for the suffering, except that he can be glorified. And if you go back to Job, Job suffered and God did not reveal the reason for his suffering. Job wouldn't have found that out until he he came into the presence of God. And it's often the same for us. Now, it's possible that you could punctuate verse 3 a little bit differently because there's no punctuation in the Greek. So you could read it as, nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him, I must work. So why do bad things happen? Well, we live in a fallen world, a world willing to serve Satan and sin. So bad things happen because we're sinners. And what does it mean by while it is day? Well, for us, for Jesus, he was only there for a little short time. But for us, if we neglect our service, our opportunities for service, then we lose those opportunities. So each day we can consider as while it is day because we today we have opportunities and we can use them or, or not. So Jesus is basically saying the issue is not sin. Rather, this man's misery gives me opportunity for ministry. And misery always opens the door for ministry. Suffering opens the door for ministry. I've got a story here to help illustrate this point. As a junior in high school, I had the opportunity to represent our district at the Athletes in Action National Conference. Although the conference began Monday morning, the featured speaker failed to show up for Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays meetings. He was on campus, but the pain he lived with continually prevented him from joining us. Now this is his story. During the 68 to 69 season, that's 1968 to 1969, this is a while ago, Brian Sternberg was at the West Coast Realize in Fresno, California, pumped, primed and poised to break the world record in the pole vault. That's the world record. The day before the meet, he was doing what 
pole vaulters often do, working out on the trampoline. But following one particular double flip, he hit the metal railing and broke his neck. It was a tragedy and a shock to the track and field world when Sternberg was told not only that he would never vault again, but that he would be a quadriplegic for the rest of his life. Other speakers and athletes filled in for Bryant at the AIA conference. Then came Thursday night. After Brian was wheeled out, he began to share with this group of young athletes how he had been a nominal, lukewarm Christian for a number of years. Then came the tragedy, and he said, As I was in the hospital flat on my back, hearing I would never run, never walk, never even lift my hands again, God started to do a work in my life and gave me a peace I cannot explain. Jesus became so incredibly real to me at that time and has been real to me since then in a way I could never comprehend or explain. Then, with tears rolling down his cheeks, this world-class athlete said, If that was the only way I could have what I have right now in my heart, I would take that jump all over again. When he extended an invitation to make a real commitment to Jesus Christ, Virtually the entire audience came forward. We saw revival happen unlike anything I'd ever seen before or since, but it came through a man who was broken and in pain. So we might be going through difficulties, experiencing tragedy or sickness or hard times. So watch out that we don't become introspective and say, oh, did I do anything wrong? Sometimes we do need to ask that question because some things can be caused by sin, But often, sin is not the issue. The question is not who caused the misery or who caused the suffering, but the question is, will you allow me to use it? That's what God is asking us. If you're suffering through something, God is asking you, will you let me use the suffering for my glory? So this passage gives an explanation for suffering, but it also provides an illustration of salvation. Do you think the blind man see Jesus pass by and say, I want to follow him? Of course not. He's blind, right? He's clueless. He didn't know what was happening around him. And the same is true of you and me. You and I are the blind man. Before we were saved, we stumbled in the dark. I'd just like to read Ephesians four seventeen to 19. It says, With the Lord's authority I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. So imagine a guy saying, I'm a spiritual kind of guy. I've been pursuing the cosmic reason for being and in my pursuit I came across Christianity. Wrong. This guy was blind as a bat, and he, like the rest of us before we were saved, we sat begging for a tidbit of pleasure, a crumb of happiness, a scrap of satisfaction from materialism, relationships, or anything else that passed our way. But even though we couldn't see Jesus, he saw us. And as he passed by, he said, I'm going to stop and do a work in them. I'm going to save them from their own misery and poverty. 
So just the, the main point there is that the blind man had no control over the situation. Jesus came and stopped and helped him. Okay? Because we are dead in our sins. And without Jesus taking the first step, we would have no hope. In Romans, it says, none of us seek him as unbelievers. Verse 6, when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. So, <laughs> he's got clay in his eyes. He's doubly blinded, not only from birth, but from the clay. Now, what does the clay speak of? It speaks of our humanity. It speaks of our being created and also our sin. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 5, In sin did my mother conceive me. We are in desperate need of a saviour. And Jesus said to him, Go wash. Now, if you've had sand in your eyes, what's the first thing you want to do? Go and wash. Okay, you want to get that sand out of your eyes. So God often causes irritations in us in order to drive us to the place of healing and redemption. And we'll come back to that at the end. And he was sent to the pool of Siloam. And we'll come back to that as well at the end. So he went and washed. <laughs> a bit of a, a pun here. This man blindly obeyed the Lord's command. And verse 7, he came back seeing. So not only does this miracle give insight into the nature of suffering, but it gives encouragement regarding the need for service. So Jesus, picture how he would have been feeling. He's just had this nasty argument with the Pharisees who have been treating him very poorly and uh, ridiculing him and name-calling and slurring him. And I don't know how you guys feel when you are in those situations, but when I'm in those situations, I feel like that's enough. I just want to get out of here. I want to do something. I just need to relax. I need to get some time out. What does Jesus do? He goes to the next person along the way and he starts to minister. He starts to help them. He starts to encourage them. So when we go through difficult times, when when we've been abused and mistreated and, and yelled at and misunderstood and we feel rejected, the next person who needs our help could be just around the corner, just down the road, just a stone's throw away. They need our love. And you know what? If we choose to put aside our feelings and we reach out to them and pray for them, we will be encouraged and our depression or sadness or heaviness will lift. So follow Jesus' example. Take your eyes off yourself and let the Father use you to bring sight to someone else. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is a merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. So in other words, the more we suffer, the more comfort we receive from God, more help we receive from God, means the more we can help other people. Uh, verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, 
Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? So, the disciples asked why the man was blind. His neighbors asked how his eyes were opened. But what's the most important question here? Who did the miracle? Who performed this miracle? No one's bothered to ask this question yet. I find that quite amazing. Verse 11, he answered and said, this is um, the, the man who was blind. He said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received my sight. Now, you notice that this man didn't say in his story how Jesus made the clay. Do you know why? So this man, he didn't explain to these people how Jesus made the clay. Do you know why he didn't explain? Exactly, he was blind. This man was blind when Jesus was making the clay with his spit. So he didn't know what was going on. So he didn't see exactly how the miracle took place. All he knew was that it did take place. So when we feel the touch of the Lord on our lives, we don't actually know exactly how it happens. We just know that it has happened. We only know that after walking in darkness from birth, like the blind man, we received sight. That's like the verse in John, the spirit, um, like the wind, we see the effects, but we can't see it. Verse 12, then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So this man has been healed by Jesus, but he doesn't know where he is. So we can lose sight of the person of Jesus who gives us life. But in this case, Jesus is, it's a gradual revelation of who he is. We'll come back to that point. So they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay in my eyes and I washed and I see. He's getting good at this. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Here, a man born blind now sees. Yet the Pharisees say, Wait a minute, that violates statute number 3,329, which forbids making clay on the Sabbath. <laughs> now talk about, you know, having the truth right in front of you and ignoring it. So they take their stand on their preconceived ideas, on their traditions, and he's taking his stand on what he knows to be true. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are thinking, Jesus can't be God because what he does does not line up with their traditions and their prejudices. And, you know, in the church today, an application for us, we can look down on other people and we could not associate with people because they don't line up with our traditions and prejudices. We need to be we need to maintain some humility and flexibility that we um so we don't refuse to associate with people just because they don't agree with everything that we agree with. Doesn't mean we have to think that they're right. That doesn't mean we can't pray with them and, and love them. Verse sixteen. Others said, 
How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind men again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Oh, that's interesting. In verse 11, the blind man called Jesus a man, but now, about five minutes old in his faith, he realizes that he is more than a man. He's a prophet. So maybe he's not saved yet. We'll we'll find that out later. That moment is coming, but in his understanding of who Jesus is, he was a man, and now his understanding, he's more than a man. He must be at least a prophet. Verse 18, But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight, and they asked him, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Now, for us as parents, or anyone with with kids in our families, we know that our kids were born blind spiritually. Now, I do not remember when my girls were three months old, I'm going to teach you how to cry and cry until you get your own way. Did we need to teach our kids that? Or did it come naturally? All right. When you turn two, we'll start working on lying. I have to teach you how to lie. No, that comes naturally too. At four, we'll move on to stealing. Of course, the kids just do these things because they have a sinful nature. Okay? So our kids are born blind. They're born lost. Verse 21. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So what did it mean to be put out of the synagogue? Well, you would lose your ability to pray to God or to be blessed by God. It meant that his family was to treat him as though he were dead and that his business would be absolutely off limits to all Jews. So saying goodbye to your family, this is being excommunicated. Your business, gone. Your family, gone. Okay, So it's a serious matter and that's why they're so fearful. Verse 24. So again they called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. So they're trying to coerce him into giving this false confession. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. (laughs) Now, this blind man was not an intellectual guy as far as we know. He was a beggar. He had never learnt to read, obviously. He'd never studied. And he's, you know, you can kind of paraphrase this. You may be able to trip me up intellectually and outmaneuver me with your smarts, with all your study, but I know this. Once I was a miserable, blind, wretched sinner like you, and now I see. (laughs) That's our testimony. No one can deny your testimony. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This is like an interrogation. He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So, the tension is rising. The hostilities are increasing. And then the blind man asks, Do you want me to tell you again so you can be converted too? And notice that this blind man is identifying himself with Jesus. Okay? Do you want to become his disciple too? He's taking his stand with Jesus. He's not succumbing to the pressure of agreeing with the Pharisees and their blindness. The Spirit is working in him. The Spirit is revealing things to him already. There's an awakening in his heart. His Spirit is starting to see. Verse 28, Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Remember that slur about his birth? The man answered and said to them, Why? This is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, really, really good logic. Can you make a better argument that this man is not just an ordinary sinner? This man is someone special, Jesus we're talking about. And when it says why this is a marvelous thing, he's not talking about his healing. He's talking about the unbelief of the Pharisees. This is a marvelous thing. Your unbelief and ignorance in the face of the evidence is more of a miracle than my cure. We know that God does not hear sinners. Now you can look up Isaiah one fifteen and Psalm 66 verse 18 that indicate that God does not hear the sinner. Therefore the claim that we know this man is a sinner is false according to the scriptures because God has answered his prayers. And it's a good argument, but again, it's rejected by the Pharisees. Now, there's three prophecies in the Old Testament, at least three, that when the Messiah come, he would cause the blind to see. And that's in Isaiah 29, 18, 35 verse 5, and 42 verse 7. So here the blind man, about six minutes old in his newfound vision and his developing faith in God, says, The one who opened my eyes is of God. How else do you explain what happened to me? It's never happened in all of history. You're professing to be authorities, yet you can't answer this simple question. So the Old Testament said that when the Messiah come, he would cause the blind to see. And that's this man's argument. John 9.34 Then they answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and you are teaching us. And they cast him out. Now again, what do the Pharisees do when they get cornered and they can't answer a good argument? They start name calling. Oh, you're just born in sins. What are you doing teaching us? Notice their pride. Reverting to name calling. Now. If we're sharing our faith and people start calling us names, when they start to get uptight, when they get angry, I believe we should rejoice. Because 
Imagine you've got a pack of dogs and you throw a stone into the pack of dogs. Which one is going to yelp the most? The one that got hit, okay? So the one that barks the loudest or yelps the loudest is the one that got hit. So we want to hit them with the truth. I'd rather someone react in this way than to hear someone say, Oh, you found your way. I found my way. And we'll all end up in bliss together. Yeah, have a nice day. We'll see you around. You know, there's no conviction there. It's just a denial of the truth. It's better when they're sometimes when they're angry because it means they're convicted. And they cast him out. Now, as I was explaining before, this is a serious thing. You know, it's basically you're kicked out of your community and you've got to fend for yourself. Your livelihood is gone, your family is gone. But I believe it's a good thing. Because being put out of your old group, yes, it is very painful, but it is very spiritually helpful because you don't have to fight those um, or live in that darkness anymore. You can live with people who are like-minded. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, again, Jesus goes to him. He said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? When we are rejected by others, what does Jesus do? Jesus comes, okay? So it's not all that bad to be rejected by other people because what does Jesus promise? He will come and he will fellowship with us. He will, we will experience him. And I always keep going back to this, but the three friends of Daniel in the fiery furnace, when they were rejected by the king, they were the leaders in that kingdom, but um, they were rejected by the king. And Jesus was there in the fire with them. And the question in verse 36, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Finally, someone is asking the right question. Who is he? Who is the Messiah? Verse 37, And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. So here is the progression of this man's revelation. In verse 11, this is all in this chapter, in verse 11, he says, a man called Jesus. In verse 17, he is a prophet. In verse 33, a man from God. And now in verse 38, the son of God, and he worships him. Now, by receiving worship, Jesus is once again assuming deity he's telling people yes i am god because if he wasn't god it would not be right for him to receive worship not even angels can receive worship so verse 39 and jesus said for judgment i have come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind now if you look at john three seventeen, it says he did not come to judge but judgment Although it's not the reason for Jesus' coming, it is the result of his coming. And verse 40, Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. So what does that mean? That's pretty confusing. So the phrase that those who do not see may see. So those who admit their spiritual blindness can find sight in Jesus. But 
those who may see may be made blind, that is, those who falsely claim to have a spiritual or to have spiritual insight will be made blind. Those who claim to already know and refuse to listen to the revelation from God, they're going to be made blind. Are we blind also? And this is a sneer at Jesus, you know. The Pharisees are sneering at Jesus, confident in their own spiritual insight, and it was blindness because they could not see the Son of God right in front of them. Contrast this to the blind man, or the guy who was blind. Oh, who is he? Uh, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped. Jesus is standing right there, and there's different response from of the Pharisees. It's amazing. So if you were blind, you would have no sin. So if the Pharisees would humble themselves and admit to their spiritual blindness, they could be forgiven and set free. But because they said, we see, we already know everything, their sin remains. They would not accept that Jesus is the Messiah. So because the Pharisees preferred the darkness of their pride, they rejected the light of the world. So chapter 8 was revealing blindness in the Pharisees. Chapter 9 is healing blindness. Now why did Jesus use clay? I just want to finish on this. So this miracle was not a restorative miracle, it was a creative miracle because this man never had sight in the first place. He had to be created. So clay is a picture of what God used in creation. He created sight in this man. And it reminds us that we are made of dust. We are formed from dust. And Psalm 103.14, one of my favorite verses, he says that God knows what we are made of. He knows our frame, that we are dust, that we are weak. All right? Truly, we're nothing but dust. And yet, so often we try and deny our earthiness. We spray paint our dustiness and add some chrome and put expectations on ourselves that God never intended. But being dust, it's ludicrous for us to walk around cloaked in pseudo-spirituality or to burden others with heavy expectations. We're just dust. We don't need to have these higher expectations than what we should have on either ourselves or other people. We need to realize that we have a sinful nature we're always going to struggle with. doesn't mean that we it's an excuse for our sin, but we need to know who we are. And don't fool yourself into thinking that you're someone you're not. There's verses in the Bible that talk about that. Second uh, Corinthians 4, 7 talks that Jesus is in us. God put Jesus, the treasure, within this earthy, dusty vessel. Now, healing blind people occurs in different ways. So, in one case, Jesus spoke to a blind man, Mark 10, 46-52. In another, he touched the man's eyes with his hands, Matthew 20, 30-34. Another time, in Mark 8, 22-25, he touched the man's eyes twice, and here in John 9 he uses mud. So Jesus works creatively, individually, and uniquely. Now we have a tendency to try and box him in and say, no, Jesus must do things this way. Now imagine what would happen if um, we started a ministry. Well, the first guy would, who was healed just by speaking, oh, that would be the word of faith ministry. I'm going to start a denomination of healing. I'll call it the word of faith. Just hear the word, and if you believe, you'll be given sight. You'll experience a miracle. 
And the next man would say, no, 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 that's not the way God works. He works with the laying on of hands. I'm going to write a book and begin a movement called Healing Hands Ministries. The power is in the touch. The third man would say, no, it takes more than one encounter with the Lord to really be healed. I'm going to offer a course in second touch ministry. <laughs> it would be a two-step program because everyone knows true healing can't happen all at once. And this man in John would say, no, that's not it at all. Mud is what's important. Mud in eye ministries. Well, mud in your eye ministries. That's the key. That's where the blessing lies. So, <laughs> I'm being facetious here, but, you know, God works in our lives in a particular way, but he works in someone else's life in a different way. And we need to be considering of that God will work in other people differently to the way he works in our lives. Now, For us personally, when Jesus put mud in the blind man's eyes, the man could have said, wait a minute, you're putting mud in my eye. You're not making things better. You're making them worse. He was a blind man. He was begging. His eyes weren't sore. But as soon as Jesus put mud in his eyes, ow, they're starting to sting. They're gritty. And often for us, the Lord, when he's working in us, he'll make things seem worse or they'll get worse before they get better and God does this I believe in order to get us to the place where he wants us to be to be healed and seeing clearly now think back to the story of the athlete Brian Sternberg who was a quadriplegic and then was used in a mighty way to lead others to Christ so when the Lord muddies the waters we don't often know what he's doing I've been praying, I've been believing, but things are only getting darker and dimmer and harder. What are you doing, Lord? But you know what mud does in your eye? It causes pain and it causes you to want to go and wash. Now, what does a pool represent? Well, Ephesians 5 says we are washed by the water of the word. And John 15.3 says you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So. The water is the word. So when we go through these hard times, when we're irritated, it should drive us back to the Bible. It should drive us back to look to the Lord, to find our solace, our rest, our comfort in the Lord, in his word. And then as we do that, we'll see things clearly in the way the Lord intended us to see them. So when the hard times come, when the irritations come, It's not for us to despise them or to wonder what's going on, but rather to embrace them and then run to the Word of God, run to the Lord, and see clearer than we did before. So, Father, I just thank you for this little analogy here. Lord, often when we do go through sufferings, it does drive us closer to you when we choose to run to you. Lord, you, you put the, figuratively speaking, the mud in our eyes and We run to your word to get it cleaned out, Lord, and we end up seeing clearer than we did before. We have a greater understanding of who you are. I pray that you will continue to do these things, Lord. Whatever it takes for us to grow closer to you, I pray that you would do it in our lives and that we would respond in a humble way and just run to you knowing that you're doing this for us to draw close to you and to see you more clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.